Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Pick up right where we left off in verse 18. You will recall last week we encountered Jesus performing the miraculous twice in a row. Jesus healing without even visiting, healing a servant of what would have been essentially a captain in the Roman army. And then Jesus raising a man from the dead to bless the man's mother who was a widow. And that section ends with this. It says, the report about him, this report, which is that a great prophet has arisen from among us, this report spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And then in verse 18, we pick up. And the disciples of John reported all these things to him, that is, reported to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, said, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized in the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to one another. We played the, the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. Son of man come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Lord God, would you speak to us by your word today, and my, may my words be from you, from your spirit, as we examine this text together in your name, amen. You encounter in this story two groups of people who had two very different sets of expectations that were placed on Jesus. 
And really what we're encountering in this text is a phenomenon that has continued to this day. In every generation, in every culture, in every context, there is the tendency to take Jesus because he's so appealing and so inviting and he wields the very power of God. He's a healer. He's our savior. He's all these things that we know. And to take him and draw him into our culture and enculturate him in a way that we own him. He becomes ours. And so people will speak of, and there are books written about a white Jesus or a black Jesus, a conservative Jesus, an Asian Jesus, a liberal Jesus, a Jesus of this era or that era. The reality is that Jesus is Jesus. We must encounter him for who he is, not on the basis of our expectation or our cultural baggage that we seek to place on him. We receive Jesus. We don't take hold of Jesus. We don't own Jesus. We receive him just as he is. The first set of people in this group were those that were spreading the word about this being a new prophet in it, and it reached the ears of John's followers. And you recall that John was out in the wilderness. He'd wear camel's hair, and he would eat crickets, wild locusts, and he would eat wild honey. And that was who he was. He was a man of fasting and of prayer, of, of living out in the desert, of, of uh, calling people out to repent. He was that proverbial guru on the mountaintop, only in this case it was the desert. And people went to see him for his wisdom, but also to see him because he was a firebrand. He was shaking things up. In expectation of the glorious coming of the Lord, he was out shouting, people, it's time to get on your knees. It's time to repent. It's time to turn to God and away from your sins. But John was expecting Jesus to do that in his lifetime. You see, when the Pharisees would come to John, he would say to them, don't you realize that one is coming after me, the sandals of whom I'm not able to tie. So glorious was Jesus in comparison to John. And he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thresh the wheat from the chaff. John's emphasis, his focus was on what we read in Isaiah 61, the text that Jesus himself would read when Jesus sat down in the temple and opened up the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to set me, uh, to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus stops. But this is what John was looking forward to. And the day of vengeance of our God. He was looking for that vengeful God. So when his disciples come to Jesus, there's a tinge of doubt in their voice. John wants to know, are you the one? They say you're a prophet. Are you really just a prophet or are you the one? Where's the action and when does it start? It's a good question. Well, Jesus says back, you go tell him the action's already here. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. Jesus' response 
was that everything that you thought was a foreshadowing of something greater was, in fact, the moment. Stop looking past these great miracles of God and see them for what they are, which is the arrival of God's kingdom now. It's not a precursor of the kingdom. It is the kingdom. He basically quotes to him what it was that Brian read earlier in Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand has become a pool, the thirsty ground, springs of water where jackals would haunt. Now they lie down and the grasses, reeds and rushes. A verdant land, a rich land, a place of blessing. Jesus is saying in the middle of all this darkness, the light is not a precursor to a greater light. In fact, he would go on elsewhere to say, I am the light of the world. That this is the moment. John was looking for the Jesus who would lead to something greater. When what John should have been looking for was Jesus. Because he's enough. The Pharisees' problem was similar. Jesus speaks to the crowd and he says, do you see John here? Do you think he's a, a fool? Do you think he's a reed flopping in the wing, wind? Or do you think he's a fine-dressed king who, who can't put up with something when he faces difficulty? What did you go out to see, a prophet? No, more than a prophet. He prepared the way for me. Then he goes on to say this, the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God. What shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? This is a confusing passage in this part. He says, what are the people of this generation like? They're like children sitting in the market stall saying, well, we sang a song, but you didn't dance. And we played a dirge, but you did not mourn. What is the context of that? What does it mean? Well, it's not that the people of that generation are like the children. The people of that generation are like those of whom the children are speaking. You see, in those days, children would kind of sit around the market. They would engage in the business of their parents. They would just be kind of flopped around from place to place and maybe put to good use here and there and otherwise kind of playing kid games in the street, running about, who knows what they were doing. And if you go to developing world countries, you'll see this even to this day. You can go to a market and you can see kids always, almost every country in the world, kids out in the middle, if they have a space of 10 feet of dirt, they've set up a soccer pitch. They're playing soccer and then they'll sing songs and they'll play games and they'll be, you know, some might say, the disciples would say, obnoxious. But one of the things that they would do is if there was a funeral procession, they would join in in the singing of the dirges in the morning. And if there was joy, they would pick up their instruments, like our helper was up here this morning with her tambourine, and they would play along and dance along and sing along as the wedding went on or the moment of joy occurred. 
But that generation, Jesus was saying the Pharisees and all those good Jewish people were like the people that the children would complain about. Because you see, the children might play their instrument and others would not join in. They might sing their dirges and the others might mourn, almost like they would play act. They would, they would <laughs> and then others would be like, oh, stop it, you're being foolish. In other words, the kids were not what that generation was like. It was the humdrum adults, the older teenagers, the ones that thought that the kids were foolish and were never satisfied with them, who thought the kids were annoying. Get out of the market. Get out of the way. Stop playing your silly instruments or singing your dirges. Get out of here. You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus and hated John because neither of them matched up to their expectations. Jesus didn't seem to align with John's expectations, and the Pharisees hated both of them. The Pharisees and the good leaders of that generation looked at John and said, what a nut, out there not eating, fasting way more than is required, smells to high heaven, he's disgusting, and who eats crickets? And Jesus, he's over at the bar. He's having a drink with the sinners. You can't trust either one of them. You see, they wanted a Jesus that they could control. John seemed to be looking forward to something greater than Jesus. The Pharisees were looking into a Jesus or a religious movement that matched their expectations. They wanted something that was sensible to them. Something that was inoffensive to them, that matched their sensibilities. A Jesus who would perhaps wear the robes of a Pharisee and sit in the stalls during the market as should be and exchange the money like the Pharisees and the religious leaders would do, who would instill confidence in the temple system, who would lend his weight as a prophet, not towards John and not towards those sinners, but to the religious leadership as it was. As it was. No change is needed, thank you very much. John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine. You said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. You say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' response to both is similar, isn't it? To John, he says, the proof's in the pudding. People are seeing, people are hearing. People are alive that were dead. Demons are cast out. To the Pharisees, he says, the proof's in the pudding. Just you wait and see what happens. Wisdom is proven by her children. That's a reference, kind of obliquely, but a reference to Proverbs, where wisdom is often referenced as a woman. To be sought out and to be highly praised and glorified. And the children of wisdom would be those that did right in the eyes of God. Well, what about us? 
What expectations do we put on Jesus? How do we seek to enculturate him to make ourselves more comfortable with who he is? Because ultimately, that's what it's all about. You see, for the Pharisees and for John, they both hit an encounter where they were expecting something, and when they didn't get it, they either questioned, or in the case of the Pharisees, would become very, very angry to the point of murder. Because what they wanted was to take Jesus, not for who he was, but for who, what they wanted, and to shape him, to mold him into what they would have wanted to see. How do we do that in our lives? How do we take Jesus and apply him into our scenarios and make him what we wish he was rather than who he actually is? Well, I've told you how people do this. They do this in books and in writings and in movies where they make Jesus out to be this or that political persuasion or this or that ethnicity. Folks, Jesus was a Jewish man. He would have looked like a modern-day Palestinian. He wasn't white or black or Asian or South American or any of that. They make Jesus out to be a, a political leader. And they'll use him to, to justify all sorts of, uh, in other countries, revolutionary activities and uprisings. Or we'll use Jesus in our personal salvation to make our lives easy because we believe that being saved was sufficient and never actually have to follow him who said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We've had an evangelical Jesus that made us all too comfortable receiving him for ourselves, but never seeking to emulate him, to be shaped into his image, to take up our cross daily and follow after him, whatever that meant. I think in many ways, the tendency in the American church in the past, and I can't speak to the future because who knows what the future will hold, but our tendency has to be, be a bit more like the Pharisees when it comes to our understanding of Jesus. If I said to you that biblically Jesus was found in the house of sinners surrounded by prostitutes, drinking wine, eating with them at great feasts well into the night when all the good people would have dusted off the names of those individuals that they knew were bad and never crossed the threshold of their homes. How does that translate to today? Where are the places that we would not dare be seen, but the gospel needs to go? You ever thought about that? Are there places that need Jesus, but we're too good to bring him there? That's not an easy thing to think about. Are there places that need Jesus, but we're too good to go there? Are there people that need Jesus, but we're too holy to spend time with them? would never be seen with such and such. I, I would dare not be seen sitting down for a meal with that person. But that's Jesus. That's the Jesus of scriptures. 
He defies our expectations. When we want him to bring in a kingdom, he says the kingdom is already here. When we want him to show us righteousness and holiness in a perfect life, he shows us that righteousness and holiness requires spending a significant amount of time with imperfect and unrighteous people in the call of salvation. When we want him to make us feel good about ourselves, he with John says, repent and believe the good news. He doesn't need our expectations. What he needs us to do is to accept him for who he is. He's our king, our savior. He's our healer. Of course, he's our sanctifier who makes us holy. If you turn back to the middle of this, You read here that it says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why is that? How can that be? How is it that the least in the kingdom of Jesus who has come on earth would be greater than John? Because John was still in the not yet. John was still looking ahead. John wanted something greater, but never would achieve it. Soon his head would be served on a platter to King Herod. He would die, having not seen the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. Having not experienced the resurrection of Jesus and the reappearance of Jesus to the disciples having not seen the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of men as the word of God would go out from person to person and hundreds, if not thousands, would come to faith each and every single day in the weeks following that moment of Pentecost. But we live in those days, and yet for some reason, for some reason, we still look at somebody like John and think, man, to have that kind of faith, to have the faith to go and, and, and just abandon everything and live in the desert and eat locusts and, and wild honey. I've had crickets. They're fine. You can go do that. I've never worn a camel's hair shirt. You can go do that if you so choose. Go live in the woods somewhere and, and have that be your act of faith. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. You see, we're not looking forward to something greater than Jesus. We have Jesus. He dwells in your heart the moment that you accept him as your savior. You don't have to look forward to a greater moment. One of my favorite moments that I saw just on a silly YouTube video, this is kind of funny, is there's a guy who reviews pizza. He literally just walks around, eats a slice of pizza and gives it a numeric value. It's, it's kind of a dumb YouTube channel. And the guy's walking around, a minor celebrity of no importance, and he's eating uh, pieces of pizza, and he's walking around with the cast, like three of the cast of the Avengers movies. 
Okay, like serious A-list superstars that people should recognize on the street because these are like the Avengers. These are in the biggest movies of all time, okay? And so this guy, his name's Dave, is walking around reviewing his pizza, and this young woman stops in the middle of the street. Remember, this man Dave is surrounded by all of the Avengers uh, actors, right? And he's, this woman says, oh my goodness, you're Dave, the pizza guy. And for 10 minutes, Dave stands there and eats pizza in front of this woman while the other actors are just standing there looking at her like, we're here too. <laughs> Hello. A lot of times in our religious walk, we find that which is most familiar to us and we don't see the grandeur of God at work surrounding that moment. We settle for the lesser glory of experiencing Jesus on a level that's manageable rather than surrendering our heart into the infinite experience of the Holy Spirit working in us each and every single moment of our lives. We make things seem very small. We recognize only the most immediate and most comfortable things that God is doing. But when we really surrender our lives to God, when we allow Jesus to fill us with his spirit, what does he do in scripture? Spiritual gifts break out. People speak in tongues and healings happen and demons get cast out. Persecution then follows because every human authority is threatened by the kingdom of God in this world. The word of God spreads from country to country to country. And on and on for 2,000 years. Are we going to settle for a Jesus that we can control, that makes us feel comfortable, that matches our expectations, and that we think is good enough for us and all that we need? Or are we, my friends, going to open our scriptures and encounter the full Jesus as he presents himself because he's infinitely greater than anything that we could ever ask or imagine? You see, we have a picture of Jesus that John never got until he went into heaven and met him. And there's a throne in Revelation 4. There's one seated on the throne. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. And there are 24 thrones with elders seated around them. And lightning and rumblings of thunder. And before the throne were torches of fire, the spirits of God, representing the churches and the people of God. And there were living creatures on either side, like a lion and ox, one with the face of a man and one like an eagle. And each of them with six wings cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on it. Do you understand that that great throne moment is the same Jesus who went to the cross for you and me? Did that awesome picture which no CGI and graphics could ever encounter or recreate of infinite majesty of all the creatures on earth and all the people glorifying God in heaven and Jesus seated on the throne 
So beautiful is he that he can only be described like emeralds and jewels with brilliance and light and color. That's Jesus. That's who he is now. So when you receive that spirit of Jesus inside of you, you're receiving the spirit not only of the humble man who walked the earth and was despised and was beaten and had no power amongst men other than what God gave him. You're worshiping the infinite almighty God who is seated on the throne. That's the power that fills you. That's the Jesus that we accept into our hearts. When we sing, Ferris, Lord Jesus, ruler of the nations, it is, yes, a humble Galilean born in Bethlehem. In Nazareth he lived. Yes, born of Mary. Yes, poor. Yes, a carpenter. Yes, had nowhere to lay his head, but now has somewhere to sit, which is infinitely majestic and glorious beyond all our imagination. That's the Jesus that indwells you. It is both and. I invite you to search your heart with this question. How have I made Jesus in my image? How have I made Jesus something less than who he is? You see, we are made in the image of God, not God in the image of man. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we were made in the image of Jesus. But Jesus was not made in our image the way that we want him to be. So I ask you, how have you made Jesus to be more like you and less like himself? How have you shrunk him down? How have you moved him away from the center of his being as Lord and Savior of all mankind? How have you tried to control him in your life? To say, Lord, you can have control over this part of my life, but not this part. You know, in every household, my wife and I have this in our household. There's certain sections of the house that are definitely mine, and there's certain sections of the house that are definitely hers. And the hilarious part in that is that the things that I get most critical about in hers are usually true about mine as well. I'll walk into her office and say, man, this place is a mess. And then she'll walk into the garage and be like, I can't find anything. There's stuff strewn everywhere. But I know where every nut and bolt is. Every hammer, every piece of tape, every spider. I've named every one of them. We have ours and we have theirs. There's her space and there's my space and the kids have their rooms. And even at, uh, you know, eight years old, my daughter will be like, what are you doing in my room? I'm like, how much have you paid to the mortgage this month? <laughs> None, right? This is still my room. You're just living in it. <laughs> what do we try to set aside from Jesus's authority and ownership? What do we say? Yeah, that's mine. You can have all of this, but this time of day is my time. Or this set of evils that I still enjoy are my sins, and I'm not going to give them up. I've given you a lot, Jesus. I'm not giving you that. 
Or what about, uh, you know, this uh, thing that I know I ought not do, this mistreatment of myself or others, this past broken relationship that I just don't want to take care of, that stays over here. That's not for you, Jesus. This direction of my life, my work, what I want to do with my days, that's mine. You can have my attitude, Jesus. You can have my 10% of my money that I give to the church. You, you can have my guilt, because I don't want guilt. You can have my guilt. But this thing over here, the direction of my life, how I think things should be from day to day, that's mine. My friends, if you believe that you can follow Jesus and not give him the keys to every room in the house, you follow a false Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. The disciples would try that tactic at one point. One would want to follow after Jesus. And he said, now hold on, Jesus. I got to go home. I got to bury my family. And this sounds callous. You know what Jesus said to him? Let the, let the dead bury the dead. It, the time is now. Follow me now, not when you are ready, not when you're comfortable, not when you've settled your estate and done all the things that you think you need to do. Let's get moving. Today might be the day that you need to open the doors that you have kept locked away from him, who is the master of your soul. Today might be the day that you've got to admit that you haven't been willing to let him into this section of the house because it's too messy, because it's yours, and nobody should touch it. Today might be the day that you need to recognize who Jesus really is in your life, not who you want him to be. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you did not meet the expectations of John or of the Pharisees. Lord, that you didn't come with immediate destruction and judge the living and the dead when you came to earth. Had that happened, not a one of us would have stood. And Lord, we're so grateful that you did not match the Pharisees' expectations as a buttoned-up religious ruler who just gave more rules and followed them perfectly and made everybody else feel bad. Lord, I thank you that you were you, that you were accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because you wanted to be with those gluttons and drunkards, because you wanted to love the prostitute and the outcast, because you wanted to save them. Lord, I thank you that you are you today, seated on your throne. All the authority and power given to you by your Father. And Lord, where we restrain your authority in our lives, where we try to control you or constrain you or keep you from truly ruling our hearts, Lord, would we open the doors in our hearts that we constrain and keep to ourselves? Would we be prepared to hand over to you the keys to our souls? Lord, rule over each bit of our lives and don't let us shrink you down into something less than who you really are. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.